The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present the Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm really glad you could tune in for this one. This is going to be a great conversation. Today, we're going to talk about the past, present, and the future, choices that we make and paths that we take in life and where they lead us. I'm going to take a 40-year trip back to the 80s and even a little bit earlier with someone who was traveling that path at the same time, and we're going to compare experiences and see where we're at. So this show today is going to be a little bit different than normally just my interview thing or where I'm talking to authors and something like that. This I thought would be something a little bit fun and a little bit different from an interesting perspective that I I don't think a lot of people really, really get to experience. So we're going to see what happens. We're going to wing it, you know, throw it out there. So my guest today, Sam Rosenthal, was someone who I went to school with going back to elementary school. So I went to school in South Florida and went to Nova Blanche Foreman Elementary, Nova Middle School, and I graduated in 1983 from Nova High. So if you're doing the math, yes, that's <laughs> that's how old I am. So this was an interesting experience because you got to see the same people year after year. And even if you weren't close friends with them, there was a commonality of experience. And so the years went on, we graduated and went out into the world and as social media became a thing, you know, you were able to see what happened to some of these people uh, that you went to school with. And Sam was always an interesting person uh, to me. You know, he was a journalism major. He worked on the Olympian, which I'm holding a copy of my 1983 yearbook. Um, I was on the Nova View newspaper staff. And so we were in the same space, you know, for that period of time. You know, I know we both love music. He used to publish a magazine in high school called Songs from the Wood that I thought was pretty cool. So I just decided today um, I wanted to reach out and just see where he is today, what he's doing. We're going to talk about his career and music. And I don't know what else we'll talk about, Sam. Let's see what happens. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. This is kind of fun. I was a little nervous. I'm like, how is this, how is this going to go? But I just think that we have such an interesting perspective of you know, being with a group of people over those important periods of time in your life. So I'm, I'm going to start what, so what do you remember? Like from early years in high school, like I I'll say this, I remember you from, I always thought you were, you know, super smart. Like you always seemed to know what you were doing. You were focused. I mean, 
do you what do you remember from me if anything at all of high school or that that time you know it's interesting because i remember vaguely you and other of our friends much more from like elementary school where i felt i think we must have been in some of the same classes at that time in a way that i remember people yeah. being there where in high school it seems like there, there must have been more people and it started getting very diverse so I just sort of have this memory of oh yeah these people were like my friends when I was really young they were people who I had good relationships with at a young age and I think I I, I guess I felt less like self-conscious in elementary school versus getting into high school when you start feeling more pressures right so I personally I think I remember better times when we were younger. Yes. And you grew up in what, Davie, Florida or how I was in Cooper City, which is like, I don't know, five miles from the school we went to or something. Yeah. But it you have good memories, right? Of elementary school. I feel like I have better memories of elementary school. I think there was more angst as I got <laughs> into sure. high school. Yeah. As we got into high school and it was the eighties, you know, I remember, uh, <laughs> crazy music, you know, uh, I remember you were into, um, I think it was soft cell, right? So yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember carrying a little tape deck around and playing Frippinino, which is Robert Fripp from King Crimson and Brian Eno from Roxy Music, but it was very kind of droney, noisy music and it just being very weird <laughs> compared yeah. to what generally people were listening to more either Southern rock or rock in the 80s especially and, where we went to high school there was a lot of leonard skinnerd fans sure and you know um there was one guy kevin who was on the newspaper a yearbook who was also into soft cell but it was definitely not like there was a lot of new romantic or new wave until anyway that's different there's whole other stories anyhow right right yeah. that's <laughs> that could go a whole other direction yeah. i do remember I, I don't know why i remember these like weird things you were probably the only one in high school that listened to Kitaro. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because Kitaro used to be sort of odd electronic music until he went like totally into what became the new age genre. So at the time, Kitaro was a Japanese import. You know, you buy the LP for thirty bucks or whatever. Right. And it was it was still obscure, but he transitioned into like massive over time. Yeah, and I don't think many people listening might even know who Kitaro is. So maybe they'll they'll look him up and explore some of his music. Yeah. I mean, I think the Silk Road albums, there's like, I think three with Silk Road and the tile were really melodic and they were pretty. I think the sound he did became more formula for that genre over time. Yeah. yeah. I don't know where, I don't know who knows Kitaro anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly nobody in the early eighties that you were the only one in high school. I'm like, wow, this guy's listening to like some really, you know, interesting stuff. Um, let me, let me explore what's going on here. I mean, luckily, so for me in, in high school, I was lucky enough to get a job at Peaches Records, mm -hmm. 1500 East Sunrise Boulevard. I still remember the address. Oh, I was at the mall one. Oh, you the were? The mall one. Yeah. Oh, that's two right. Two years, maybe. I don't remember. Two or three years. See, to me, I still have dreams about Peaches Records. It was <laughs> like an American beauty kind of time for me remember that movie with kevin spacey where he dreamed about going back and flipping burgers i don't know if you no. ever saw that movie but like that to me was such a carefree time 
I was a senior in high school. I listened to all kinds of music, everything, because we played whatever we wanted in the store. Mm-hmm. So everything from like Guns N' Roses, you know, there was one guy that got to pick a country album he liked or something. So I heard all of this stuff and I just, it was like the dream job for me in, in high school. I got to work the uh, bass at the time, bass ticket machine yeah, sure, and yeah. sell uh, Van Halen tickets, you know, to my friends. And could I worked at hot records, in, hot records in Davie when I probably my first year of college. So there were high schoolers only one year younger than me coming in and causing trouble. But yeah, we had the Jackson tickets when they went on sale and the system crashed and people were all very upset. And uh, and then I was the import buyer of Peaches by the mall. So I was still always doing sort of the, the fringier odd music. Yeah. And the fanzine, the name changed to Alternative Rhythms. So Songs from the Wood was a Jethro Tull album name. And then I changed the name. And so I was hearing all this really odd music that wasn't, I mean, Kitaro was still on a big label. I was hearing like small bands from around the country or even bands in town. And then you started your own, right? Then you started your own band. Is well, that what yeah. came first? So I, I was doing the fanzine, which might've been as early as 79 or so. And then I decided to put out a cassette of electronic bands mostly from South Florida that I had heard or been writing about. And I had bought a keyboard at that point. So I had like one or two of my tracks on that first cassette. So the record label sort of evolved out of the fan scene and the music kind of at the same time. And you were dialed into the local scene, right? Like I'm trying to remember some of the bands, Charlie Pickett and the Eggs. Yep. Um, So there was a band from our school one was called Intrusion, which was a prog rock band. And then one was called the RAF, which was, to me, it's sort of like the Stones or Charlie now. It's not really that weird. But at the time, people somehow thought that was weird when they were playing rock and roll. you know. So there were a lot of local bands. Um, Johnny Depp had a band a little bit after. The kids. Yeah. And then he moved to California. And so the it really grew out of covering bands. And then at some point, I was like, I, I kind of want to just put out bands I like rather than just writing about bands I hear. So the label kind of, when I moved to California, started taking off a bit more in 86. Okay. So you spent some time in California in 86. I didn't know that. I knew you were in New York for a little while. I, I've lived, I went Florida, California for Los Angeles and Chicago, then Brooklyn and now Portland, Oregon. So city to city around. Um, and it was mostly my music at first until 89 when I started putting out other bands too on the label. And how many bands are on the label now? That's so hard to answer. There's like 650 releases on the label. Wow. Um, some bands aren't on the label. Their rights have reverted back and some bands are. So, I, you know, between 15 and 20 active bands, I would say, but really most of them are in individual artists doing electronic music. It's, not many of them are actual bands with multiple members. Right, but like collaborative projects, you mean? Like people working together? Uh, for the most part, they're individuals who record at home um, individually. Like my band, Black Tape for a Blue Girl, I have a singer and a string player these days, but I've had like 40 people in the band over time. Um, but not as many actual, what you would consider rock bands that have four people three people, songwriters, multiple songwriters. It's much more singular people making electronic music. 
And this has been going on since 1986 with the band. And actually this year with your record company, Project Records, that's turning 40. And this year is also our 40th, what would be a high school reunion if we would go. <laughs> I don't yeah. even know if they're gonna if they're gonna have one. So that's quite it's quite a career. I mean, you've really stuck to what you wanted to do, were you know, kind of singular in that, it seems like. I mean, were you, it seems like you were so focused. It's interesting because when I was doing a reissue of one of my earlier albums, I talked to my best friend in college, like what do you remember about me? Because I was dealing with all my insecurities and whatever. And he also said, you seem very focused and driven and knew what you wanted to do. And I was like, wow, weird. I don't, you know, I mean, yeah, I can see I did things, but I don't know if I felt the kind of confidence that sounds like. Right. You know? I think that's true for a lot of people. You put on that face, you know, I mean, I've had people say to me, like, you seem so in control, like, but they, and then they don't see when you're, you know, falling apart or having sure. some anxiety attack or something like that. Yeah. And so they remember the external you and you're still processing the internal you and how that's changed over time. But, you know, I, I've been doing the label full time since 1991. So wow. it's over 30 years of this is my job. And, um, yeah, I must be focused on it, you know. Yeah, you did. You you concentrated. And you've been able to make a living, right? That's right. From your I, music. I am fortunate that I make a living in music and that I can be sort of a filter for income from, well, to the artists from people who are listening to the music over the different, you know, mediums that people have used over the years. And as a musician, I'm not a full-time musician. I I work far too little on my music, but I'm also, you know, I'm fine with that. So you're dealing with the business aspect more so than, you know, performing or, or writing music these days. That's right. I definitely don't work on music that much. And do you wish you could? Not necessarily. I mean, <laughs> I could if I wanted, if I pushed myself to. I think the thing I find with my own music, and maybe these are just excuses, is I need breaks so that when I do something, it feels new to me, where some people are just nonstop working on music and that's what they enjoy. Right. So I am so okay I'm, getting back to it after time. I understand that. I mean, I I need to take breaks more. <laughs> I, I probably should take breaks more. Um, but I mean, being able to build that business that's turning 40 this year. That's really quite an accomplishment. I I kind of went through a couple of different things where at first, so if I look back like at high school, I thought I would be a writer, you know, and that's where the, the newspaper came in and I thought, oh, I'll be a music writer. I love music. So I thought I would do reviews. So I, I wrote a couple of reviews that I still have. And I read, I read some of them last night. They're, they're so bad. Um, from that local rag, the rag, yeah, rag. remember sure. that? Yeah, do you know? So, yeah, and I, I knew his daughter, uh, Barbara Debbie. Fideli, at the oh, time. Okay. Um, I didn't, I didn't know Debbie as much. Barbara was closer to my age, um, but I would submit, you know, these reviews, and he did. I remember when he published one, and I was so thrilled. I was just over the, over the moon, like running through I, when I worked at Peaches, I'm like, look, the rag published my thing. Wow. And it was a review for um, U2 
uh, one of the U2 albums. And then there was another review I did for this Rossington Collins band that was like uh-huh. a Leonard Skinner. Yeah, offshoot. sure. Oh, it's so bad. Um, so so I thought I would be a writer or or in that in that world. And then when I was working at Peach's Records, they would have me do the announcements. Attention, Peach's shoppers, bring your purchases to the counter. And they go, wow, you have such a good voice. You should do something with that. I'm like, hmm, what should I do? And then some guy came in and he had a, there was a community radio station called WDNA in Miami. Mm-hmm. Sure. Are you even familiar? I remember the name. Yeah. You do? Oh, yeah. wow. I don't think anybody remember this. It was in a warehouse off Bird Road, Miami. They go, we need someone to do a jazz show. Oh, I'll do it. And then I thought, I don't know anything about jazz. What do I know about jazz? But luckily I worked at a record store, so I got a lot of free stuff. So I went with my peach crate and I drove down to Bird Road in the warehouse. And I thought, wow, this is so fun. So that was kind of the the catalyst, which became a radio career. And I did that in, luckily in my hometown for a while, I went from that and I did Love 94, then WSHE, then Big 106. And then I kind of like did the circuit of South Florida. I'm like, I'm hitting the ceiling. There, there's really nothing else for me to do here. They weren't going to give me afternoon drive. You know, they weren't going to put me on in the morning as like the morning show host. I would be the midday girl, which is mm-hmm. what I what I did for a while. And it's just interesting, like the steps you take and the doors that open. I mean, do you remember what was like a catalyst for you that kind of changed things? Was there anything like a decision you made to move here or to take this opportunity or to listen to this person that really made a difference? I mean, I think the transition from doing the fanzine to doing the label was, I want to actually do the thing, not write about the thing somebody is doing. And so it was like, it sort of takes the same amount of energy, but I'll be putting out records instead of putting out a magazine every two months. And so, uh, I mean, I can't say it was because of somebody, but it was more, the music I was listening to was pretty odd and obscure. So it's like, okay, you don't need a major label budget to do this kind of music. You know, you just need ideas and make music. And so it it was still more punk rock, you know, hey, I can put out a record to see what happens. Right. Um, and I remember like, going to a distributor with my first Black Tape for Blue Girl album and them saying, yeah, I don't get this. Why does it wait so long before the vocals start? You know, I, I don't know if we can sell this. I'm like, that's really a, a limited way to look at music, you know? And so it was kind of not listening to people who ha- knew what they were doing in a way. But and you just- love the music that, that was being created. You really just had a passion for that that genre and what, what you were doing. And you found other people that felt the same way. So you're really you know fans supported right oh yeah that's right yeah because for a long time i was mostly mail order on the music and i would put an ad in spin magazine and the classifieds and get like a thousand people asking for a catalog and it was really a lot of direct selling and so even now there's a site called Bandcamp, which is a digital store and so much of the connection with the audience is through this as opposed to through itunes or spotify which is the more you know, normal way to connect. Right, the more commercial way. Yeah, I mean, there's there's tracks that get played on playlists on Amazon or Spotify or whatever, and those definitely help everyone as well. 
but there's a lot still of the, just directly connecting to people who care. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I like that approach. I think that's so cool that you're able to reach the fans and the people that are really passionate about this music and they're supporting you. And you've always done that from the beginning. I mean, do you have any, cause sometimes there's, I read a lot of love hate with musicians and artists against Spotify, you know, for and against, or the direction that music is going and how people are consuming it. I mean, do you feel that there's freedom in what you're doing to carve out your own way. Do you feel that it's better for the artists now or worse? I mean, and that's kind of a big question, but. <laughs> well, I have to say as the person running the business, you can't try to stay in the past because you thought that was better. You have to go to wherever the audience is at. You know, you can't say, I can't say to the artist, my label, we're not going to do digital because I still love the album format. Okay, great. Well, then no one's going to hear the music and that's not serving the purpose of putting out their music. So I also feel that I had the same argument 15 years ago. Spotify doesn't pay enough. Digital doesn't pay enough. It might not pay enough per song, but in aggregate, it pays enough now. So I feel like that argument isn't valid. But an artist who used to only sell a thousand CDs now only gets 3000 streams. They're not going to make enough money, but they didn't make enough money before either. I think it's not, it's not like, well, let me see how to phrase this. Very few artists in the label can make a living off of music, but that's always been true. There was a real slump in the two thousands where even the artists who used to make a living were starting to hurt, but it's come back now with streaming. And there was a, iTunes used to sort of float the boat for a while, but now it's not iTunes. Spotify adds up. And it's weird. I'll go to an artist I don't even know. And I'm like, this person has like 60 million plays on this song I've never heard. Of. How? What? Okay. I mean, somebody has been making a living off of that. So it is possible now, again, for the more successful artists to make a living off of music. It's just different format. Right. And I mean... With my band, I'm selling LPs again, you know. Um, after wow. this Kickstarter is done, there's going to be 10 LPs for my band, which is crazy that it's vinyl again. But that's, that's so, what people it, want. You know, I'm so blown away with the resurgence of vinyl, which I never thought that I would see. Mm -hmm. And all my vinyl has kind of disappeared, mm -hmm. uh, left with my old roommate. But I did save my colored vinyl and, and weird stuff like that. So I yeah. have some collectible things. You know, uh, but I never thought people would still use record players again. But some people really swear by the sound. Yeah. And I now there's so much nice colored vinyl. I mean, almost everything I do is colored. And it's just like it it makes it really attractive. And people are kind of bored of a shiny, a shiny CD. CD is going to probably sound better for longer than your vinyl. But, you know, it's really that's what people are wanting. And the Kickstarter that I'm doing 
it, it goes back to what you just said a second ago, which is it's fully fan supported. You know, I, I offer different, it has vinyl, it has CD, it has mini disc, if you remember them. I do. Yeah. So I actually have <laughs> sold 30 mini discs on each of my last three Kickstarters. And it's just, you know, somebody, one of the fans said, oh, why don't you do mini discs? And I'm like, what? Why? Do people still even like those? But there's like this hardcore mini disc audience. Very small, but it's there. And it's really, the Kickstarters are about the fans now coming back to support nice, pretty deluxe editions of things. And for the new album, I'm, so the new album on Kickstarting was recorded in 87 when I was 22. Wow. And so I, I'm remixing it from scratch and it's just like much better technology. I'm better at doing this, but then I'm also, okay, that's what I thought back then. I don't really think that way about things now. So it's sort of like, much more than just thinking for five minutes about what you did in the 80s. It's actually hours and hours of hearing what I did in the 80s and kind of, I'm not changing it. I'm just mixing it so it sounds much better. So it better sounds now. better, right? Because like you yeah. said, you're better. You're more of a master at your craft now. Yeah, and I have then. much better gear. Yeah, and the and the equipment's better for sure. But yeah. it's it must be so interesting to you know, look back at the lyrics and, and what you were thinking at that time. So- I wanted to ask you this. So I was listening to some of the music uh, online and this one song called The Cleft Serpent. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool name, by the way. Thank you. And in the lyrics, you say, you know, I've lived this life many times before with you, you know, touching on on some themes of things that I'm I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, do you do you feel that that's that's the case? Are we a, a continuum of energy that, you know, will continue to go on and maybe cross paths, cross paths with people, you know? I hope so. Eternity? <laughs> yeah, I, I I would like that to be because when you really contemplate the fact that you could be done forever now in a year, in 10 years, and all the feelings and all the things you enjoy could never be again that's kind of really sad you know there's a lot to enjoy in being alive and so unfortunately for the cleft serpent he's sort of over and over going into all the messy bad places that his karma keeps doing the problematic stuff and not learning the lessons then well i one could hope that by the end of the album he has that album is a theme the story continues with the cleft serpent and the trickster, two characters. And they're in many different times and settings, having different but conflicting dynamics, occasionally loving, but often loving and hating at the same time. So perhaps he learned something by the end. Very interesting. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to the whole the whole thing to get the whole story. Yeah. Cause just I was flipping through the the discography and there's there's so much amazing music. I'm like okay this caught my eye (laughs) what Mm -hmm. is going on with this song so i was listening to listening to the lyrics and i I really hope people go to your site you know to project.com j-e-k-t project p-r-o-j-e-k-t yes (laughs) and and listen to everything um and there was another project that you did working with an artist named mark selig that came across my desk when i was at hay house hay house publishing and I was just kind of really getting into meditation at that time. I still listen to this a lot. It's called The Disciple's Path by Mark Selig. 
just really incredible music that that takes you places. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious of your own exploration into that, that realm of, you know, meditation, contemplation. Um, I mean, you, you like this, that those sounds and that kind of music that will transport you somewhere. I mean, do you have a regular practice? Like, what do you feel about that? Um, Mark and Byron Metcalf are both um, Groff holotropic uh, facilitators. And so the two artists on the label, they both, I think, are really up on the flow for a journey. You know, they know where things should go when, where to put stuff in the path. And so I think you're you're probably connecting to that. They're not just throwing some songs together in some random order, but there's actually this journey going on. I personally don't have any meditation or anything like that. Um, I I have done Graf, um, the holotropic breathing. I do find that the kind of music I listen to leads me to be more distracted by the kind of music that is usually played in those sessions. And I know you're supposed to in meditation or that leave behind the thoughts, but I do get kind of distracted by the music. <laughs> so you're listening in a different way, I guess, than I would be. But I find when I do my own stuff, which is um, more with other substances, I can put music on that I know and it doesn't distract me because I now know what music works for me. Okay. Um, and so I, I mean, for me personally, Philip Glass and Sigurus are really good music for journeying. Someone else might find Philip Glass completely distracting and annoying. <laughs> you know, it's kind of personal, I guess. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of contemplation of the what are feelings? What do they really feel like? What if you never have them again? What what and if we end, how you know, that's gonna be unfortunate. You know, I enjoy what I'm doing being alive and interacting. Right. So that's so a, positive. I like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a tough thing though, the idea, you know, my son is twenty now, a little bit older than when we left high school. Uh, almost the age when I made that album. It's just, it's weird to think about all those things. And I, I mean, I I think we still have a lot of time in front of us if we live to our possible life expectancy these days. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like that much either. I I mean I I'm with you. I hope that there's a lot more. I just hope that I have my my marbles. I hope I have my my mind and and somewhat of of physical, you know, I hope I, I can keep my body, I guess entropy sets in at some point and, you know, things are going to break down eventually. But I think that the energy of, of us, of you and I, what makes us who we are, I think that that continues on to another journey of somewhere that I don't know where, but we'll find out, I guess. Yeah. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I think there, I mean, I talk to a lot of people who claim that they know what happens after we die. Uh -huh. And I, I think anybody who really knows has died, right? So I don't see how anyone could really definitively describe that unless they have, have done it. But I mean, I have hope that that that, that energy of, of us continues on. And there's a lot of physicists that say similar things. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I read, I've read a lot of Graf, Tim Leary, a lot of different psychedelic writers and it sort of crosses over into those questions because those are things that 
people are concerned about and things that people seem to experience. And when you read the ones that talk about near-death experiences and people who've come back, who, you know, maybe they've experienced a bit more than we can understand. But I think it's also, to me, it seems like what you're expecting is a little bit where what you find. So it's hard to know. It, we right. won't know. George Carlin said that, I think you go where you think you're going to go. Uh-huh. Right. So maybe you you expect that. And he also talked about the big electron. That was an, another one of his his theories. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a big a big Carlin fan. But I do want to touch a little bit on um, you had mentioned uh, the Timothy Leary um, project. Did I bring mm-hmm. this up? Because I think this is so cool. I want people to listen to this. I mean, Tim, Timothy Leary definitely explored a lot of places that I would never know. I was trying to think what what would it feel like if I felt the the amount of a high that Timothy Leary was on like if if I could experience somehow in any trip that he went on what would that how how would that feel but I guess it would be totally different if I'm doing it right yeah but I mean <laughs> yeah. I, I I like that Timothy Leary started out from the very square scientific world that he had legitimate background in psychology and trying to find new ways to do things therapy and deal with it and then he moved into psychedelics realizing one trip could get you so much further than 10 years of therapy and then he you know blew up as a media person and like you know pitching lsd and then he went on but he always sort of was i don't know about the original science timothy leary but he was sort of a trickster and sort of like playing with the rules even when you read the early stuff it's like basically we're i'm playing the game of being timothy leary i'm playing the game of being a college professor and it's all society's game that we have to play and so i i like how much he just pointed out that we're doing all this stuff because america says this is the stuff americans do you know but the social conditioning right yeah it's not like that's necessarily what we would have done if a different structure had come up. So I do like that he was sort of poking at the system all the time. Yeah, enough to get tossed out of Harvard. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, he didn't like rules either. (laughs) Right. And this project that I'm, I'm mentioning, it's called Tim, Where Are You Now?, a collaboration for Timothy Leary's 100th birthday, um, something that you, you released this in 2020, like that was, you know, definitely the pandemic year. Yeah, sure. I mean, probably a good time to get contemplative, you know, at that that point in history. (laughs) Well, musically, what I did was I just asked artists on the label to send me little bits of unfinished songs, you know, maybe one keyboard track or a couple of tracks together. And then I would just take it and, process it, cut it up, change it, use it as a basis to make something else. And so it's a collaboration, but not in the traditional sense where like people sit together and work on a song together. It was sort of, they provided some raw material that I could then use as a color to paint with. And either it's deep in there at the end, or it could be much more upfront, like the part where Mark is playing flute on it. You know, it's it's flute part. It's not like I chopped it up and moved a little segment of flute or something. And and then I just sort of read a lot of Timothy Leary at the time, and there's 
there's four spoken word bits where I took parts of High Priest and sort of edited them some to be more concise. And then it was also sort of just trying to get famous people to, you know, uh, read these parts, which I think a lot of people were like, mm, Timothy Lear, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> but now people are looking at his research in a whole new light. Oh, I yeah. Mean, there's such a renaissance of, you know, psychedelic healing, you know, looking back at the stuff that he was doing along with Ram Dass is got a lot more respect. Yeah. I mean, Maps has done the totally proper legitimate science version of what he was doing in a way more like, let's see what happens kind of method. So psychedelic therapy and here in Oregon, psilocybin therapy is now legal as of, I think the first of the year and they're training facilitators for it. And I just think that and what MAPS is doing with MDMA is just going to so change people's unresolved psychological issues. The ones that, you know, ones that can hopefully be resolved. I think MDMA is so much more promising than 15 years of talk therapy that hasn't helped people out on it. Right. Um, so I do think, you know, there's this argument. Did Timothy Leary set back psychedelic therapy 25 years or did he help psychedelic therapy? And I just feel like the cat was out of the bag either way, whether Timothy Leary was the person or if Ken Kesey, right? Yeah. The, uh, the Merry Pranksters. The Somebody Merry was Pranksters. Going, was going to do what got Timothy Leary in trouble. You know. Yeah, there's a lot more research now. It's going to be really interesting sure. to see where this goes. And it's funny. So now with me at this stage of where I am in life, I would like to go back and, and explore doing an experience like that when the one time, you know, the times that I tried before, like in high school or my early 20s, the one one experience I remember, I think I sat in a tree with this other guy for like eight hours uh -huh. And just had like these deep, profound conversations <laughs> sitting in a tree. And, you know, but what did I get from that? I didn't have any kind of spiritual awakening. Uh, I didn't really learn anything. It was more like a recreational thing. I think what you're right. saying with having people guide you in it is you're going to get a lot more out of it. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing I discovered reading a lot of Groff and Leary and stuff is in the 50s, there was already a structure for how one could best take psychedelics and get positive experiences out of it from setup to the experience to the integration afterwards. And so when I always heard about a whole bunch of people in San Francisco going to a Grateful Dead show and being ripped on acid, I'm like, that sounds horrible to me. <laughs> you know, I don't want all of that input right then of all of these other people. And the brief experiences I had in the 90s in San Francisco with people on MDMA was also horrible because they were all tripping and it just, I, I wouldn't want all this world around me. I want much more focused on the yeah, way therapy too, works. Too much, yeah, too much input. You know, you yeah. don't really know how to handle it. It's like, yeah, that that's kind of that's kind of how, how I felt. And I think that's why we ended up in the tree and, and that <laughs> yeah. one experience like, oh, we're, we're safe here. No one can see us, you know. But doing um, the Groff holotropic and seeing, you know, when he moved from LSD therapy into holotropic therapy, you know, he used the same idea of the container and the safety and, you know, Set and things setting. like that. Yeah. But the one thing Groff says is your internal healer works on what needs to be worked on. So even if you don't know something's happened, something inside of you is actually still taking something from that experience. 
and um one of his books he says it's it's interesting to try to actually analyze what happened but it's not necessary you've still gotten something from it you just might not even know what you got from it and right okay. but you'll benefit for yeah. sure so i mean you're doing so many interesting things still to this day i mean what do you hope for like say what's going to happen in the next five years or so do you want to just continue on with project forever and keep going well i would love to find someone who does my job at project so that there's a lot of i mean i okay let me rewind back i work at project and then shay works a very limited number of hours a week some would works even like two hours a week and then I have a mail order person that's pretty separate so I'm still doing the majority of the dealing with the distributor uploading files file checking just work that someone else who was good at it could be doing and then I can just be doing the more overview kind of stuff you know finding artists working with the artists and not like also checking files in production so it would be nice to be doing more of the top five percent of the pyramid as opposed to all quite deep into it. And so that would be an ideal thing for me. And and I I don't work on that much music and I don't really feel bad about not working on that much music. You know, I think any job you do for 30 years, you kind of, and it's, you know, you hit the ceiling, you've sort of done what this job is about. I don't really feel the need to like do more, <laughs> much, much more right. than I'm doing now. Do you, do you yeah. feel like you want to, you know, take it easy a little bit more, you know, I, I have your own complain. time to yourself? My life is pretty good. I can't complain that I have a hard job. So I wouldn't want to say that, but yeah, less work is always nice. Yeah. Other things. Um, and it would be cool. Would like, your son want to take over? Oh no, no. He, he does computer work and our brains operate differently as far as things and so he's he's doing his thing and it's you know if if a dad is going to say oh yeah you go out into that art field and try to survive on it that is a much harder place to go to try to survive than go into technology you know so it's a it's it's what he's always interested in him too so he sounds very smart because that's there's going to be a, a need for that always going forward right so he'll always yeah. have a job always that and there's always new areas of technology where you know okay we, we'll change formats from lp to cd to digital but it's still sort of the same job you know it's the same and he's 20 now yeah he just turned 20 in the summer it's so but interesting I mean, that pe like people now are having are kids that are having kids you know yeah and i didn't have them i wasn't like young like some people when they have kids yeah. were some people my age be almost grandparents, I suppose. But I was thinking, I mean, we met over 50 years ago, half a century ago. It's just not feasible. You know, how can when you're seven, think about 50 years from now, you know, it's just it's mind boggling. I remember a particular exercise in I think it was middle school, you know, sixth or seventh, seventh grade. And the, the assignment was, where do you think you're going to be in the year 2020? Oh, wow. That's like, no, that, you know, flying cars, you know, where's our flying cars? We don't have that yet. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to be so old then. How well, old, I, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think when, when I think about us as, you know, five or 15 year olds, it seemed that 50 was old, yes. you know, 
but it was also people who were when you look at pictures of people who were 50 in 1985 they looked like people who are 70 now it says people sort of have a different idea of what you can still do and you look at Mick, Mick Jagger and he's what 78 or whatever yeah. and he's like way more physically active than most people you know yeah, than i am so, for sure yeah it's sort of what you do um yeah so it's hard it's hard to imagine and yet i don't really feel physically different than when i graduated high school you know i i, I feel the same i don't I, I think we look pretty good yeah i mean <laughs> i i'm a goth and i've stayed out of the sun <laughs> and definitely i think Drinking a lot of water and staying out of the sun helps. It does. Yeah, it, it help, helps helps your complexion. I mean, we got a little bit of gray. That's okay. Yeah, but the You're sun right. in South Florida is pretty bad for your skin. It is. You. It's intense. I mean, I'm, I'm here in San Diego. It's a, a little bit a little bit drier. But yeah, I think you're right as far as our parents, 50 and 60 is much different than I think what we'll experience. Yeah. Um, you're lucky you'd mentioned before we we talked that your father's still alive. Yeah, my dad is 89, which he still lives on his own. And up until six months ago, his health was like great. You know, he's had some problems now. But the the I it, that's a lot more time if I live to be 89. <laughs> you know, it's it's weird. It's like I almost look at that like that's almost as long as since I moved to California left, which would be an amazing amount of time left. Yeah. <laughs> and you never know, but well, you're very yes. lucky to still have him. You know, both my parents are gone, unfortunately. Um, and it's weird to, you know, not have not have them here. But I get, you know, that's kind of the natural, natural progression of life, how things go. Um, I I hope that you're continuing on for a long time doing what you're doing. Um, and I do want to before we wrap up, I want to tell people about your your Kickstarter and send them over there. Mm -hmm. So I think the best thing is to get there is if you go to blacktapeforabluegirl.com, the front page has a link right into the Kickstarter. And a Kickstarter is crowdfunding where the audience gets together to basically pre-order the album in order to support the making of it. And it's it has different tier levels, like the high, you can get a package that has this LP and then four other LPs or the CD or both LPs, or there's some other ones where you get name in the booklet. And it's basically the listeners are getting together to make works of art happen. And Kickstarter can be for a variety of art formats. It could be to make a movie or it could be to make a comic. And I've been using it for a while just because you know, in the 90s, the 2000s, you would sell one CD at Borders to one person, and I would never know who that person was. And now the people who still care are coming back to the bands they like to help them now do better, better in the more deluxe sense releases of their music. And for this album, I think I said, I'm remixing the album. And to me, it's a, such a different sound now that I can like spend time and hear each instrument properly and EQ it so it sounds right. Because my memory of what those older albums sound like is probably worse than they actually sound just because of how the gear and I got better. But right. the interesting thing is the recordings are actually not bad. The instruments on the tape, because this was recorded on tape, 
the instruments still sound good and the vocals still sound good. It's just the process of mixing on old gear. If I had gone into a studio and spent a lot of money, I could have had a much better mix, but doing it at home, it just was the best I could do. Right. You had to work with what you had at the time. Yeah. And I guess once again, if it, if it had been on a, a label of, with money, they would have said, no, no, that's not good enough. You got to go in and actually mix this in a studio where it will sound better. And um, so now it sounds like the bits I heard when I was recording it and the levels of things. And the other part is my first album, I mixed the whole album in, I think, three hours, if that. <laughs> That's like insane, you know, just now because I, I can spend 10 hours mixing one song, you know. So I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm sure the guy at the studio was like, are you nuts mixing this whole thing in one day? So but now people learn. will get this more enhanced, you know, version of this music the way that you really want people to hear it. Yes. Yeah. It is like so rich and the vocals aren't muffled or varied or mixed a little wrong, you know. I mean, but the other thing that's interesting is my current vocalist, who's I think about 15 years younger than I am, this was one of his favorite albums when he was in high school. You know, we didn't know each other then. And so I've been asking him about it because you know you i have a fan who knows the album john knows this album as a fan and so i'm changing it a lot insofar as making it sound distinct but i'm trying to keep the spirit of what it was and not some artists like john kale did an album where he basically chopped up and redid the whole album into a new album which is an idea but not what i'm going for so i'm trying to stay true to the spirit of what it was just make it sound as good as it could. So I like having somebody who knows the album as a sort of a reference to ask them, what do you think here? Did I, did I mess this up? Did I go too far? Do you hear it the way you used to hear it? So. That's interesting and, to have a fan work on that project. Yeah. I mean, the previous, one of the previous ones, there's this guy, Randy, who's loved this one album, Ashes in the Brittle Air, so much. And I had six unreleased tracks I never finished. And it's kind of like Randy is the one who pushed me to finally dig them off the tape and do it. And so there is sort of a, a more back and forth with people who love the albums now. As you know, I I was once isolated and just doing it, you know, and now they have I mean it's interesting that everyone has their own perspective of your favorite album and your ideas might be completely not what the artist intended. You might misunderstand a lyric or misinterpret it and Art is really whatever the listener is doing with it at that point. So. Right. And reaching new people too with this. Yeah. I mean, I do find it interesting on Spotify or sorry, on, on Twitter when I see like a 20 year old posting about one of my albums, I'm just like, how did you hear this album? Where did you stumble upon it? And one guy was like, I was just in a used bookstore and it was on the shelf and I like to cover. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's what we used to do with music, you know, when people when we worked at Peaches, you couldn't hear most of the albums, right? People right. either knew it or went, huh, that's an interesting cover. I'll see what that band's like. Oh, you know, absolutely. So. I'm I'm very drawn to that kind of stuff, marketing. You know, <laughs> if, well, if it looks good, sometimes I'll check it out. Yeah, the artist the artist had an intent for why they put that on the cover, you know, and if it draws you in, it's great. So that, that's um, so cool. I mean, I wish you so much success with this Kickstarter project and the best place again is the website project.com. Um, project.com will lead you there or black tape for blue girl.com. Both of them will lead you to the Kickstarter for the, and I'll uh, put all the links 
in sure. the podcast notes here this, for people. Yeah, and this album is called Mesmerized by the Sirens. And it was the second one. And now that I hear it, I'm like, there's a lot of water theme on this album, you know, <laughs> coming out of Florida. And there's a lot of water and there's a lot of, um, I mean, when I hear the early stuff, it's just there's so much misunderstanding of myself and other people. And, you know, you learn, oh, yeah, yeah, now you just sort of talk to people and you just sort of like say where you are. And if they don't like that, that's fine. But back then there was so much insecurity, but I have to figure out how to make that person like me by saying the right things. <laughs> right. Isn't that, I think that's one of the benefits of over 50 that you don't care about that as much. Yeah. Because if someone doesn't like where you're at, that is just fine. You're not the right person. You guys don't connect. Okay, good. You know this now. Why put in time trying to fool yourself right. or fool them? Right. But, you, ex you accept it instead of before was all the angst, you know? Yeah. And maybe it's just if I did this one thing. Yeah. But it's going to fall apart because you're, you're faking it. Right. Right. So yeah, you learn and <laughs> you live and learn. It's good. Yeah. I think it's good. I mean, it's been so cool to take this little journey with you and touch base, see what you're doing see mm -hmm. what I'm doing. Uh, if people like what you hear, definitely check out the other podcasters on mindbodyspirit.fm on all your favorite podcast directories. And I will have all the links for Sam and his music so you can get in touch and uh, open your mind to what he's doing. It's really incredible. And maybe we'll touch base again and like, we'll, we'll do another interview. <laughs> like, I don't know when we're really old. Okay. Maybe like in another 20 years, we'll see. <laughs> yeah we'll do the math another 40 years right another 40 that thanks so much Sam for joining me yeah thank you so much for having me on are you looking for help on your path to healing I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you, right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.